Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you bridge the gap between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Good morning, Kit. Hey, good morning, everyone. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you have a blessed weekend. You can catch us each Saturday here on Relevant Radio, 1330 a.m. at 11 a.m., but if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes of The Bridge Builder, just visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast. You can also find The Bridge Builder podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your other favorite podcast platform. Each week, we try to bring you a great interview on some of the major issues impacting faith and public life. We also answer your questions via our mailbag segment, and you can email those to us at show at mncatholic.org. Again, show at mncatholic.org, or contact us through Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And it wouldn't be the Bridge Builder if we didn't provide you with a practical way of living your faith in public life through our Bricklayer segment. A mind is a terrible thing to waste, and today we're talking about education and the role of education in the formation of faithful citizens. It seems that amidst all the knowledge, wisdom is being lost. We're very blessed today to be joined from Dallas, Texas, Dr. Thomas Hibbs. He is the newly inaugurated president of the University of Dallas, a fine Catholic university in the United States. And Dr. Hibbs is a philosopher by training and a longtime commentator on questions in the humanities, education, and culture. Dr. Hibbs, good morning. Thanks for joining the Bridge Builder podcast. Good morning. It's great to be with you. Again, congratulations on being appointed president of the University of Dallas. What is the role of a university president and one at a Catholic university specifically? Well, that's uh, an increasingly complicated question for presidents whose shelf life seems to decline each year. Uh, There are enormous pressures on universities today uh, to supply all sorts of services for students, for presidents to raise money to be the face of the institution. I think at a Catholic university in particular, you you have to be able to articulate clearly and in an exciting and inviting way the distinctive Catholic mission of your institution. And you have to do so for potential students, for alumni, uh, for the faculty, and for your board and your donors. Uh, You have to do so in such a way that you can get people all working in the same direction and toward the same ends. And that is to advance the Catholic intellectual tradition, to make sure students are highly educated, but also to to emphasize the formation of moral and spiritual character of young people. I'm blessed to be returning to the University of Dallas, where I received both a bachelor's and a master's, a place that has really never wavered from its founding mission as a uh, truly Catholic liberal arts institution. You're a philosopher by training, but everywhere it seems uh, humanities departments seem to be in retreat, uh, with the emphasis more on practical things, the university as a research-based institution really focusing on the hard sciences or engineering or the professions. Do we still need the humanities? Absolutely. At the University of Dallas, we have very strong programs in the sciences, a very high acceptance rate into medical school, a lot of students doing high-level research with faculty who do their own research. But our faculty here understand their principal calling to be as teachers of students, both inside the classroom and mentors outside. And also what we want to do is to give students an opportunity through an immersion in the Western liberal arts tradition, the Catholic tradition, to understand our heritage. 
it's odd that there's so much pressure on instrumental education and on STEM in our time. Not odd in the sense that these are unimportant, but odd in the sense that I think there's a growing recognition in our culture that we have enormous technical expertise, but our character development, our public discourse are not keeping up with our advances in technology and sciences and medicine and related fields. The humanities are the place, at least in a university, where students learn to ask questions about what it means to be human, about what our relationship is to the world, to other people, to God, to country. One of the reasons we've become inarticulate about these matters in our country and that our civil discourse is in such a state of decline is that students are not getting this deep immersion in the Western tradition uh, in their high school and college years. So it's uh, I think once you point out to people the deficit in our public discourse, the historical amnesia that we suffer from throughout our culture, people start to awaken to the idea that that's an element of our education that's indispensable, and it is largely the humanities that supplies that education. You've written about the liberating power of the humanities, and we hear terms like liberal education, uh, then liberal society. What's the what's that connection between uh, a liberal, edu- a truly liberal education, one rooted in the humanities, and nurturing the free and virtuous society? Well, that's a very good question, and I think the first thing to note is that we've we've so lost our connection to liberal education that sometimes when we use that phrase, people think that we're educating people to be political liberals, which is has nothing to do with the uh, the meaning of the term, except insofar as it means literally, liberal education means to be led forth into freedom. And, uh, and I think that we see in our culture, and this is uh, uh, our, our popes in encyclicals from John Paul II's Gospel of Life and, uh, and Splendor of Truth, uh, on up through Benedict and into many of Francis's writings today, warn us about a crisis of freedom in our culture, that we have an understanding of freedom that is self-validating, that what it's a sort of consumerist view of freedom, that I have preferences and you have preferences, and we can't judge between them. Well, this, this is a really corrupt and dangerous view of freedom, both for individuals and for our public life and for our church. So one of the first things that a liberal education provides is it's rooted in a conception of the human person as having certain natural capacities, inclination toward truth, goodness, and beauty, but also an observation that we are bound and blind in various ways. And we need education, we need the practice of virtue, we need the practice of faith in order to be liberated from the ways in which we are bound and blind. A liberal education plays an important role in that freeing by helping us to pose the, the most important questions for human life and by presenting before us some of the most important and compelling answers to those questions. You've quoted Václav Havel's exhortation for people to live in the truth. What does that mean? So Havel was living under a totalitarian regime, Um, He's a Czech dissident who then became uh, a leader of his country after its liberation. And what Havel was particularly adept at analyzing was the way in which um, 
certain uh, totalitarian forms of government sort of force people to almost unconsciously accept lies and living in conditions of untruth because we're forced by the culture, by the leadership in such governments to alter our perception of reality. We don't live in the United States in a totalitarian regime, but we do have cultural forces at work that would manipulate our way of speaking and understanding the world in such a way that we lose our capacity to recognize the truth. And so Havel's view was that you needed, in such circumstances, a sort of subculture, a community where people lived in the truth, where they were willing to say things that the wider culture was uncomfortable with or would be willing to repress. And so habits of truth-telling are necessary for a certain kind of freedom that's both personal and communal. We're joined on the line by Dr. Thomas Hibbs. He's president of the University of Dallas, a fine Catholic university deep in the heart of Texas. Dr. Hibbs, uh, speaking of ultimate truths, uh, our truth generally, Cardinal Newman recently canonized, uh, like St. Thomas described theology as queen of the sciences and kind of the crowning jewel of the university. What role does theology play in a university education? So that's a great question, and particularly to pose that in reference to Newman is enormously helpful. So so Newman has this idea that a university is just a university, whether it's Catholic or secular or not. So his great book, The Idea of a University, is meant to describe what a university is, no matter uh, what its ultimate commitments are or whether it's faith-based or not. And Newman thought that the idea of a university was the pursuit of truth in its complexity and its unity. So it's the pursuit of truth in all avenues of knowledge, uh, and it's the pursuit of truth by seeing connections among those parts. And he thought that that the pursuit of truth was desirable for its own sake, that the human intellect, as we understand from reason and from revelation, is made to know, made by God to know the truth. And so a university is about the truth. What Newman also insisted on, though, is that universities had to have some way of unifying these truths. So that Newman argues, actually, on the basis of natural reason, not revelation, that theology is an indispensable element in a university curriculum, because only theology could teach about the unity of truth and its relation to ultimate truth, which is God. In a Catholic university in particular, that theological element will draw upon Scripture, uh, the teaching of the Church, the great writings of the Church Fathers and of the doctors of the Church, in order to illumine reason. So Newman wanted both for reason to have its full sway in a university and in a Catholic university for the Catholic theology also to inform the whole both of the intellectual life and of the lives of students outside the classroom. We know that knowledge doesn't necessarily lead to virtue and that the mor- moral action requires more than simply having knowledge. Why is it, Dr. Hibbs, that according to one recent study, the best educated sometimes are most likely to vilify their political opponents? Well, this is, this is a recent study. The results are rather astonishing that those with a high school education or less actually don't think as badly about their political opponents uh, 
as those who as those who have higher level education. And this is particularly bad amongst those who have higher education and are disposed toward the liberal side of the political spectrum in our culture. This helps to explain the backlash against elite culture amongst people, amongst uh, populations that are not as educated, not as well off, not as as connected to the prestige uh, institutions in our culture. If uh, and we've seen this in our, our elections, we've seen this in the media. There is a tendency automatically to look down upon people who are ill-educated or who are religious. I mean, very few. These are insular cultures in a lot of uh, universities, major elite universities. These are insular cultures where they don't encounter people who are not like them. And in these cultures, they are students are increasingly taught. Uh, that people who disagree with them are both ignorant and evil. And this is very bad for our politics. There, There is an element on the right, don't get me wrong, of this as well in our culture. But in that survey, it is rather striking that on the left, the more education you have, the more likely you are to have as your gut response to those who disagree with you to vilify them and think of them as stupid and evil seems a lot more often that we're translating that uh, battle in the soul of each individual person between good and evil, as Solzhenitsyn said, into the political field. And that accounts for some of the tensions and polarization in our politics, especially a politics that's more and more governed by passion and emotion as opposed to reason. But what role do you think Dr. Hibbs' education can play in fostering truly rational discourse and cultivating citizens and and virtuous citizens who can play a role in fostering a healthy civic discourse? Right. And, And let me say something specifically about Catholic universities on this question. Catholic universities are obviously not neutral. They don't have a neutral stance about truth. We believe that we have received certain fundamental truths, and we believe that we have, through grace and faith, received truths of the highest order. And we're straightforward about those commitments. That doesn't mean, however, that in Catholic institutions, particularly universities, we are afraid of taking on arguments or reading books by authors who disagree with the Catholic faith. At the University of Dallas, from the time I was an undergraduate up to today, uh, we have a reputation for rigorous argument in the classroom and for inviting students to ask hard questions and to test things out. This actually is a great preparation for civil discourse, because civil discourse doesn't require of us that we bracket or set aside our deepest commitments. What it requires of us is a deep respect for each individual soul that we encounter, that we're both trying to find the truth, and that through an exchange of ideas, even if I don't change your mind or you don't change mine, we come to understand our own views at a deeper level. We come to appreciate how other people see our views, and thus that helps us to understand our own views better. It also prepares us for, as products of Catholic education, for a world that is increasingly hostile to our views. We ought nonetheless to be able to engage with charity and incivility with those who disagree with us. And uh, and the sort of education that universities provide ought to send forth students who are confident in what they believe, 
who are confident in an exchange of ideas, not that it's going to lead necessarily to persuading everyone to our view, but that we can hold our own. We can learn from others, even if they don't learn from us, and we can provide a witness that is both in terms of our lives and in terms of the way we account for ourselves in the public sphere. I'd be doing our listeners a disservice if I didn't ask you something about pop culture, particularly TV and movies, and you've written well on these topics on shows and, and, and productions as diverse as Seinfeld and Babette's Feast. What role has movies and had movies and television played in shaping people's moral and civic imaginations today, for good or for ill? The culture, even Hollywood culture, while it's uniform in some ways, you can find things in there that are... Um, uh, that are don't necessarily fit with liberal orthodoxy of Hollywood. But I would say the influence is one that is not all that conscious, which is one of the reasons that I've focused uh, for the past 20 years or so on film and television in my writing and teaching and interaction with young people, because there are unconscious influences while we're laughing or being scared. There are certain assumptions uh, about what counts for good and evil, what counts for success and failure, what we ought to mock, that show up in these films that can enter into us and subtly form the way we see the world. I would say the biggest impact, to go back to something I said earlier, is to um, kind of um, instill in us a really shallow notion of freedom as a kind of autonomous freedom where uh, whatever we want is okay because we want it. That's at least the implicit lesson of much of our TV shows and our film culture, and it's a very shallow and damaging understanding of freedom. Dr. Hibbs, colleges and universities are in an intense competition right now just to put butts in the seat and keep the institution going, and no doubt the uh, University of Dallas faces that pressure like everyone else. But what responsibility do colleges and universities have in terms of uh, helping guides not just prospective university students, but all young people generally into thinking about uh, what their career or their vocation might look like such that, you know, we're not, we're maybe speaking truthfully about the realistic uh, job opportunities after college that are going to be available to college graduates. Um, but at the same time, maybe un overcoming this sort of built-in social expectation now that we have gone to this other extreme that everyone has to go to college. What's the role of the university in, in speaking effectively and truthfully despite the intense competition to put students in the chairs? Well, I, I think that given the cost of education, I think universities have, have a responsibility to provide opportunities for students to be prepared for whatever the next step is, whether that's the job market through internships or whether that's graduate school, law school, medical school through research opportunities and preparing them for that, provided those opportunities are there, the deeper the liberal education is, the better students are prepared for those opportunities at the next level. And universities, though, should not abdicate that commitment to helping students to think deeply about uh, what their lives are about. So you move from, you use both the word career and vocation. At the University of Dallas, uh, we like to think about all the aspects of what students are doing under the umbrella of, of vocation. So what are you called to do? What are you called to do to make a living? What are you called to do in terms of your profession? What are you called to do as a husband or a wife or vowed religious or priest? 
What are you called to do as a member of your family, your local community, as a citizen? These are all callings that we have. And universities ought to be a time where students can explore deeply, where they can be transformed by the opportunities that are before them. If students leave our universities thinking basically the same way they did about their lives as when they began and just having a few more notches on the resume, we failed. We should just close universities and become online technical schools. Students can get that sort of stuff without being in residential communities. The residential community, particularly in a Catholic setting, offers an opportunity for students to develop, to learn what it means to be an adult, to develop deep and lasting friendships, and to develop their minds and to develop a robust adult faith and a practice of that faith. If we don't offer those things and show students how those can work together, we fail. If you are a high school student listening or a parent of a high school student listening and you're looking for a Catholic university that is led by someone with a strong sense of mission and solid principle rooted in our Catholic faith, it seems the University of Dallas might be one place to consider. That We've been joined by Dr. Thomas Hibbs, prominent philosopher, Catholic cultural critic, and now uh, most recently the newly inaugurated president of the University of Dallas. Dr. Hibbs, thanks for joining us today and sharing with us your reflections on education, the free society, and culture. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. My name is Sister Teresa Christie, and I'm a Dominican sister who is privileged to be assigned to teach at St. Agnes School in St. Paul, Minnesota. I am a Dominican sister of Mary Mother of the Eucharist from Ann Arbor, Michigan. I have really enjoyed being at St. Agnes and have been blessed to reside in the newly renovated convent connected to the school. I am delighted that we are able to offer a witness of our Dominican life to the students at all ages from preschool through grade 12. For example, my sophomore U.S. history class is right next door to the senior hallway, which is full of life. Or I can walk down a floor and see Sister Mary Consolata in her fourth grade classroom. I've been really impressed with the depth of the students' faith and the commitment of the faculty at St. Agnes. I love the classical liberal arts curriculum of the school and its dedication to teaching the Catholic faith. St. Agnes School is proud to promote an authentic witness from its faculty. Preschool through 12th grade in the heart of St. Paul. Discover a school where you will be known. Learn more by scheduling a personal tour for you and your family at stagnesschool.org. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now we jump into our mailbag segment, and I think we have a topic that's related to higher education, which was our subject earlier in the show with Dr. Thomas Hibbs. With the cost of higher education always seemingly to be increasing, and it's putting a lot of debt on every generation right now, it seems, and often causing people to delay starting a family or entering into a a religious vocation. Uh, We're starting to hear from politicians trying to resolve this great crisis. So with that in mind, the question today is, what is the church saying and doing in response to the student debt crisis? Well, the short answer is that the church hasn't taken a public policy position as of yet, in my knowledge, either the state level or the federal level about how to resolve the student debt crisis. But what we should do is to look at the question more deeply and think about some of the relevant cultural factors and dynamics that have led to the crisis to begin with. First of all, the enormous social expectation that's been created that uh, people go to college, that um, college is the 
a pathway to economic success and stability and a pathway to a brighter future. And undoubtedly, in many, if not most cases, that is the case. Uh, there's all sorts of data out there that show that the uh, earning potential of college graduates is going to be significantly higher in many instances than those without a college education. So there are real, there's real data to back that up. The challenge, though, is that the cost of college education has exploded uh, in the last decade, especially in the last two decades, but the last decade especially. Uh, wages and earnings have not kept up with it. Uh, household income has not kept up with it. And the long-term economic expectations related to a college degree have not kept up with the exploding cost of college education. To afford a college education, people are taking on, uh, young people are taking on enormous amounts of debt, hundreds of thousands of dollars in some instances, without really having their mind wrapped around what that means to take out hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. You've already got a basically a home mortgage before you've even bought a home. So the crippling effect of that over the long term and the way in which that will actually limit choices. Now, similarly, there's a shortage, a labor shortage in the trades. For example, construction companies cannot find enough people to do construction work, and those are good-paying jobs that don't carry with them the cost of a four-year college or university to get into them as well. So there's a huge shortage of trades, which is driving up wages and at the same time, the long-term expectations with regard to wages in a college education, uh, especially with regard to some majors, are declining. So people really need to start taking a deeper look at their choices and moving beyond the social expectations of what a college education requires to questions regarding vocation. That's the best way to avoid the problem uh, of st massive student debt. Am I called to this in the first place, or am I doing this because of social pressures? And at the same time, are there other economic opportunities out there that will provide uh, a living wage and a stable wage to, uh, um, to have and to nurture a family as well? So a lot of considerations, the way in which colleges and uh, public policy has fostered the creation of more loan programs or fewer loan programs. Uh, what role have, has everyone played in this problem? And then diagnosing that and understanding what the policy solutions might be to that. That's an ongoing conversation. And we want to make a quick mention, too, for anyone who's listening and perhaps considering a religious vocation, maybe as a sister or as a priest, and you're just really stuck. You're burdened with this debt. Um, there is an organization out there called the Laboray Society. Um, you can find out more on how they can help you uh, overcome some of that debt um, and really help form you spiritually as well. They're website is rescuevocations.org. And that's important because many religious orders or seminaries won't let you in until you've resolved your student uh, your student loan. So Labore exists to help people overcome that, to raise the money and to help tell their vocation story more coherently. It's a good training for religious life, um, but also a wonderful way to work your way out of that debt so that you can um, enter religious life in that website, rescuevocations.org. What a great title, and that's exactly what Labore is doing. So uh, blessings to them, and check them out if you're considering religious life but saddled in debt. We're running out of time, but I do want to do our bricklayer segment, right? And the USC Conference of Catholic Bishops, the USCCB, is launching something that I think we here at the Minnesota Catholic Conference have been talking about for a long time, is civil public discourse. For the 2019-2020 this year, from November 3rd, 2019 and November 3rd, 2020, they've launched a campaign called Civilize It, Dignity Beyond the Debate. Uh, we're going to be entering a very contentious election season 
a lot of uh, rancor and discord, uh, contentious public debates. What does it mean to civilize it? And the, the nutshell way, according to the USCCB, is to recognize the human dignity of those with whom I disagree, treat others with respect, and rise above attacks when directed at me. That's the civilize it pledge that we can all take. We can disagree without being disagreeable. They've offered some tips for engaging in civil dialogue, and especially as you sit down at the Thanksgiving table uh, coming up here with relatives, um, here are some tips that they're offering for engaging in civil dialogue. Listen first and seek to understand the whole picture. As I like to say, God gave us two ears and one mouth, so we should be listening twice as much as speaking. Ask questions for clarification. Use I statements, that is the letter I, and pay attention to body language. Listen to what feelings are present and pay attention to how you respond. Summarize what you've heard and ask for feedback. Um, always good, too, to state sometimes your positions in the form of a question as well. So you can find out more um, at the USCCB website, Civilize It. Uh, I'm sorry, i got to get that website right. The Civilize It campaign can be found at the uh, U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops website. We can link to it and we'll link to it on our show page, mncatholic.org slash podcast. You can simply Google Civilize It or follow us on uh, social media. We'll be linking to practical tips for civilizing the public debate over the coming uh, year. That's all the time we have for today on The Bridge Builder. Again, you can catch up on past episodes by visiting our website, mncatholic.org slash podcast. Send your questions for our mailbag segment to show at mncatholic.org. And we'll be back next week with another great guest, your comments and questions, and a new way for you to bring your faith into public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening and have a blessed weekend.